Well, today we move into chapter 5 of First Peter, the final chapter of this first epistle written by the Apostle Peter as inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. And chapter 5 consists primarily of a series of practical exhortations directed to various members of the churches included in the territory that Peter was writing to. He begins by addressing elders in verses 1 through 4, secondly addresses young people in verse 5, and then branches out his exhortations to everybody in the middle of verse 5 when he says, yes, all of you be submissive to one another, and he finishes out the chapter with a series of of general exhortations. In addressing elders, Peter, number one, tells them what their work consists of, Number two, the manner in which their work is to be carried out. And number three, the reward they will receive from Christ if they are faithful to their task. Today we're simply going to study that first item in verse 1 and the first part of verse 2, where Peter tells elders what their work consists of. And the remainder of his exhortation to elders we will take up, Lord willing, next Sunday. And so this is our text for today, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1, and the first part of verse 2. The elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers. We will first consider the persons addressed. Secondly, consider the author. Third, consider the connection. And fourth, consider the exhortation. First, consider the persons addressed. Elders. The elders who are among you. The Greek word elder is presbyteros. We get the word presbyterian from that Greek word. And that word carries various meanings, various shades and nuances of meaning, though all of them are related. Uh, In the first meaning, it means old age, people who are of advanced age, older people as opposed to younger people. Uh, Secondly, and very similar to it, it speaks of maturity. Those who are wise and have experienced many things and are mature in their outlook on life and development, they can be referred to as elders. But here it speaks of a, an office of the church, which is not necessarily connected to age, though it certainly must be connected to spiritual maturity and some measure of experience. And Peter is addressing elders in the various congregations in a rather wide territory. You might want to move back to chapter 1 and the opening of the epistle to remember who it is that Peter is addressing. And he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. A rather large slice of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, which included a number of Roman territories and probably included many churches. We don't know how many. could easily have been several dozen or several scores of churches 
that existed in these territories. And Peter is writing a letter to all of the saints in all of those churches and all of those places. And now he zeroes in upon the elders who serve in those various congregations. Elder. When that is the word that is used for pastor, and this is a synonym for pastor, then the qualification for the office is what is being emphasized. An elder is a person who is experienced and mature, spiritually mature, and one who is prepared to provide leadership within the church. And so it is not so much a matter of physical maturity in old age as it is of leadership. As we study the scriptures, we learn that this term elder is interchangeable with the term bishop, and in one instance is interchangeable with the word pastor. It is often interchangeable with the word bishop, Greek word episkopos, from which we get our word episcopal. And so you can see how some of the various denominations derive their names from their view of church government, which was related to their concept of the elder. Episcopos, elder, bishop. We see them interchanged, for example, in Titus chapter 1. In verse 5, Paul says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. If a man is blameless, etc., he gives some qualifications. And then he says in verse 7, For a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, and he gives some other qualifications. Appoint elders. And here are the qualifications because a bishop must have these qualifications. Elder and bishop is obviously an interchangeable, uh, these are interchangeable terms. They are synonymous. You find the same thing in Acts chapter 20, and indeed in the number of places. I've just chosen two examples But in Acts chapter 20, Paul has made a special effort to address the elders of the Ephesian church. And so we read in Acts 20, verse 17, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And we have a fairly extended address that Paul gave to these elders. And in the midst of that, he says in verse 28, Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. He called the elders, and he said, Take care of the flock of God, over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. He called the presbyteros, and he said, The Holy Spirit has made you episcopus. And we could find other examples of that as well. And so the office of elder speaks of men who rule or oversee the work of the church by laboring in the word of God. Paul puts those two things together again in 1 Timothy 5.17 when he says, Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. The elders, presbyteros, who rule well. And there's a verb form of episcopus. The elders who rule, the elders who oversee. And so you see how these are interchangeable. And the office of elder, therefore, I say, speaks of men who have been appointed by God and by their respective churches to oversee, to 
rule in that sense, oversee the church while they are laboring in the word of God. And Paul, or Peter rather, addresses this portion of his epistle to the elders. The elders who are among you, I exhort. But notice that he does this in addressing the elders openly in this letter, which is written to the congregations of all the churches. Are, are, are written, it is written to all the members of the congregation, not just to the elders. If Peter had wanted this information only to be given to the elders, he would no doubt have written a second letter, a shorter one, and he would have said, deliver this letter to be read to the entire church, but this shorter letter, I want you to be read just, want it to be read just by the elders. But it's evident that Peter wants the whole congregation, he wants everybody in the church to hear the instructions that are given to the elders or the pastors. These are instructions, therefore, for all the elders among all the churches to hear and to heed. These are instructions for all who may be aspiring elders or pastors to pay close attention to, because, as Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 3, again, interchanging the terms, he said, if a man desire the office of a bishop, he desires a good work. And so there are men who are thinking about, moving toward, training toward, preparing to enter into the office of an elder or bishop, and they need to pay careful attention to these instructions. But it's not just for elders, obviously. These are instructions for all members to understand. Every Christian, every church member needs to understand the work that has been assigned to the elders. So, number one, you can cooperate with them in this work. That's very important. And number two, so that you can understand the biblical definition of pastoral ministry so that you may find and help maintain healthy churches. So much depends upon the work of the pastor. The health of the church depends very largely upon the faithful ministry of the pastor in carrying out his God-given responsibilities. And so we have considered the person's address. Let's secondly consider the author, who is obviously Peter, who identifies himself, first of all, by the personal pronoun I, and then goes on to identify himself with three phrases. But he says, the elders who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder, that's phrase number one, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, phrase number two, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, phrase number three. Peter. Now, who is Peter? Well, he's an apostle of Jesus Christ, one of the twelve, and actually, as we know, the recognized leader among the twelve. He was an apostle, and he so identified himself in the opening of the epistle. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, and so forth. It's not that he does not at all identify himself as an apostle, but interestingly here, when he gives these instructions to the elders, he doesn't mention that term. He doesn't say, I, Peter, the apostle, now hand down these instructions to the elders, as if he is emphasizing the rank, the the authority that he has over the elders and over the churches, though there is no question that he does hold some authority, some rank in that direction. 
But he identifies himself, first of all, as a fellow elder, and secondly, as a witness of Christ's sufferings, and thirdly, as a partaker of future glory. First of all, as a fellow elder. The elders who are among you, I exhort, I who am, a fellow elder. The Apostle John identified himself also as an elder. Second John, verse 1, the elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth. Or third John, 1 John, 1-1, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. John called himself the elder. Peter calls himself an elder, a fellow elder. And in this he is emphasizing his partnership with the elders that he addresses. Not emphasizing his apostolic position and authority, but emphasizing his partnership. We're in this together. We are essentially doing the same thing. What I am doing is what you are doing. What elders were to the churches, the individual congregations, apostles were to the church as a whole. What the elders did in overseeing and ministering God's word in their local congregations, the apostles did in overseeing and ministering God's word to churches everywhere that they were able to go to travel and to to uh, spend time. And they did travel from place to place and help to provide stability and oversight to all of the congregations. Apparently, Peter's apostolic authority was not being called into question at all in this situation. So he doesn't mention it here. Sometimes when that authority is challenged, you will find an apostle rising to the challenge and and reminding of his authority and defending his authority. Paul found himself doing that on a number of occasions, but here that is not necessary, and therefore Peter prefers instead to emphasize the commonality that he has with all of the elders. An apostle, obviously, therefore, is an elder. Most of the elders were not apostles, but an apostle is an elder. That's a, that's a term that speaks of the ministers that serve the church, whether they be local pastors and local congregations or whether they serve in a wider context, as Peter obviously did, an elder is therefore a recognized minister of the church. We would tend to say in our day, an ordained minister. That's what an elder is, and Peter's words bear that out. But not only is he a fellow elder, but he's a witness to Christ's sufferings. The second phrase that describes him, a witness of the sufferings of Christ, that is an eyewitness, one who has seen the sufferings of Christ, as Peter obviously did, as one of the apostles, and had the opportunity of sojourning with him for three years, and knowing so much personally about Jesus Christ. And he knew about Christ's sufferings throughout his ministry, in the Garden of Gethsemane, on the cross of Calvary, and so forth, his trial before the Sanhedrin, and then before Pilate. Peter was an eyewitness of these things, and he was therefore able to testify of them. The elders that he's addressing, of course, had not seen these things personally. But Peter had, and he reminds them of that. And furthermore, being an eyewitness in this fashion turns out to be the main qualification, or at least one of the qualifications, for an apostle. 
Peter was an apostle, and to be an apostle, you had to be an eyewitness of these things. When the church in Acts chapter 1 has found it important to replace the vacancy created by the defection and death of Judas, it is Peter who speaks these words and speaks for the church in providing direction in how to select a new apostle. And he says in Acts one twenty one. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to the day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Qualification for an apostle, somebody who was an eyewitness of the life, ministry, baptism, death, resurrection, of Jesus Christ. And Peter is reminding these elders and the whole church actually that he is one such eyewitness. And since that was a qualification for apostle, and since of course with the passing of time, the number of people who qualify would eventually diminish down to zero, as those who had been eyewitnesses passed off the scene when they died then there would no longer be any who could meet this qualification. But by, by bringing up this qualification, bringing up this, this aspect of his life as Peter, as an eyewitness of these things, he does seem to, in a very, very quiet, very understated way, remind them of his apostolic authority, but in a very inoffensive way, a very mild way. Instead of saying, I'm an apostle, you listen to me. He says, I'm your fellow elder, but don't forget, I am an eyewitness of these things. A qualification for an apostle. And thirdly, he identifies himself as a partaker of future glory. And also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Which, of course, is the heritage of ultra-believers. That was not unique to Peter. That wasn't even unique to a small group of people. That's the prospect that outweighs all present trials. And these Christians were undergoing trials, as his epistle makes clear. And so Peter is reminding them, be faithful to Christ. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Because all who know the Lord are partakers of His heavenly glory. Therefore, don't faint here upon the earth under your hardships and difficulties. And so we have considered, first of all, those who are addressed, and secondly, the author of this statement. We thirdly and briefly must consider the connection. Because in some translations, there is no grammatical connection of chapter 5 to what has gone before. But actually, in the Greek, there is a little connecting particle, the Greek word un, which is in some translations, translated therefore or so. And it is a connection. And it's just a a subtle help to know that what Peter is saying here does connect with what he said before. This is not an appendix. This is not a totally different section unrelated to what has gone before. What Peter is saying now to the elders 
connects with what he said before. And of course, that covers all four chapters. But what are the, some of the things that he has emphasized most recently before we come to chapter 5? Well, he certainly talked about suffering. He's talked about that all throughout this epistle, and his extended section on suffering began in chapter 4, verse 12, when he said, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. And so he talks a bit about their sufferings. Now he comes to chapter 5, verse 1, and says, Therefore, I exhort the elders, I who am also an elder, shepherd the flock of God, exercising oversight. What's the connection? Well, trials and difficulties and persecutions tend to make people weak and faint and disoriented and confused and sometimes cause them to drop by the wayside, sometimes cause churches to disintegrate. But the, the antidote for that is a good biblical pastoral ministry. Pastors of churches, elders, it is vitally important that you follow a biblical ministry so that these Christians who are being persecuted can be strengthened. They can grow. They can thrive even in the midst of their suffering. That's the connection. That reference to judgment in verse 17 is a similar connection. Remember, he said, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Remember, that was a rather surprising announcement of Peter, that the trials that we are suffering are actually the evidence of the beginning of the judgment of God upon his church, the judgment of the world to follow after. So, in light of the fact that God is beginning to judge His church. He's cleansing it. He's purging it. He's sifting it. He's sorting it. In the light of this kind of activity, what's important? Therefore, the elders who are among you, I exhort, who am a fellow elder, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, taking oversight thereof. All the more important in this sifting, sorting process of God, as He puts His church in the refiner's fire, all the more important that pastors be faithful to a biblical ministry. That's the way the church will survive. That's the way the church will thrive. That's the way the church will come out stronger than before. But if you don't have this kind of biblical ministry, the church may disintegrate in the midst of this kind of trial. Now that's two connections, and we could make others. We'll stop there. As we come, number four, to consider the exhortation. What is it, therefore, that Peter tells the elders to do? It's in verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers. We notice first the objects of their labors. Where are pastors supposed to spend the bulk of their energies, their labors, the flock of God, which is among you, the flock of God. That speaks of ownership. The flock belongs to God, not to the pastors. That speaks of value. The word is diminutive. It could be translated the little flock. And where that kind of language is used, as it is frequently in the New Testament, It really carries the idea of precious flock. 
shepherd, Christ's precious flock. Furthermore, it speaks of needs. The flock of God, that is, God's people are like sheep. You say, that's cute and that's cuddly. Yeah, but it's not very flattering, as I will show you in a moment. And the Bible consistently, consistently portrays God's people as sheep. Christ did that, you know. He's the great shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And even in the Old Testament, God's people are frequently referred to as being like sheep. And that is exactly the way that Peter describes the people of God here. The flock of God that is among you, the sheep that make up the flock that has been given to you. And what are some of the characteristics of sheep? And I give a few. Sheep cannot find adequate food and water on their own. Sheep cannot distinguish between safe and poisonous foods. Sheep cannot find their way home when they're lost. Sheep are unable to defend themselves from predators. Sheep cannot even clean themselves. They get dirty and matted, and that's why they have to be shorn. In fact, sheep can pretty well be described in two words, stubborn and stupid. And that's us, elders included. Thank God some are more mature than others and can be used of God to help, but that's us. That's who we are. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, the portion that is assigned by lot to you, would be a literal translation, as each elder or group of elders in a local church has a particular portion of Christ's flock. None of us can tend to all the flock of God everywhere, but God doesn't expect us to. But he expects us to shepherd the flock of God among you, that is, the portion that has been assigned to you. And what are the duties of the shepherds? And they are twofold. Number one, to shepherd. And number two, to oversee. Shepherd, in, used as a verb now. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you. Because the same word that sometimes as a noun means sheep, or in the plural means flock of sheep, and uh, can carry the idea of a pastor. That's the way it's used in Ephesians 4.11 when it gives apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor, teachers. That's the, the word for shepherd there. So we're going to have the idea. Uh, can, a different form of the word is shepherd or sheep, or in this case, the verb to shepherd, what a shepherd does with his sheep. He shepherds them. This is the very same command that we found in Acts twenty twenty eight. We read... Uh, a moment ago, as Paul is addressing the Ephesian elders. And remember what he said in verse 28, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. Oversee, shepherd. Oversee, shepherd. It's consistently the admonition that is given to the office of pastor. We saw it in Paul's writings in 1 Timothy 517. This requirement, this, this command, this description of the duty of the shepherds 
recalls to mind the words of Christ in John chapter 21, when Peter was restored to service after he had denied the Lord. And remember how Christ said to him three times, Do you love me? Question, do you love me? And when Peter affirmed that he did, what was the response? Well, one time it says, and it depends on what your translation says, uh, some translations say, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, or some, some translations uh, change it, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. But actually, in the Greek, the, there is a difference in the, in the three verbs that are used. Number one and three are the same, but number two is the one that is found here. And literally what it says is, feed my sheep, the Greek word, Greek word baska, feed my sheep, and then secondly, tend my sheep, and there the word is the same one that is used here, shepherd the flock of God. So, Peter, if you love me, feed my sheep, shepherd my sheep, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep, shepherd my sheep, or tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Well, which is it? <laughs> shepherd or feed? Well, it's both, and they are not identical, but they overlap. And you can see how in all of these there is such a strong emphasis upon the feeding part. That has got to be dominant. That has got to be primary, though that's not the whole of the task. There are other things involved as well. But the foundation of it all is in feeding, that is teaching. Teaching the Word of God. That's the great foundation from which shepherding, tending the flock, is carried out. The primary task is to feed, to faithfully minister God's word. But there is secondly this concept of oversee, to serve as overseers, as bishops, a word that means to have scope over. It has the idea of superintendence. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, serving as bishops. It should be very clear that in the Bible there is no separation between elders and bishops. I've already pointed that out, but I do so again. Because in the historical development of the church, of course, there eventually became a divide. And bishops, overseers, were, were uh, defined as, as uh, superintendents over a territory and over churches. In other words, a bishop was kind of a, a district superintendent over a number of churches. So you had local pastors, and then you had bishops. But that's not really what you find in the Bible. You find pastors, elders, and bishops are the same. They are synonymous consistently throughout in the New Testament. You never find anything that indicates something different from that. The word elder, as I've already said, emphasizes the qualifications of the man who holds this office, the word bishop emphasizes the responsibility of the man who holds this office, a responsibility to superintend, to administrate the particular little flock that has been placed under his or their care. Most of the time, you'll find the word elder in the plural. And so that particular portion of God's flock that is placed in the hands of those elders, those overseers that have been designated for a particular congregation. The sheep that have been assigned to you. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you. 
Now, it's almost impossible to carry this out with any degree of seriousness and exactness unless there is a clear understanding of who it is you have this responsibility to. And here again, we have the emphasis upon church membership without even mentioning membership. And this is why some people have trouble with the concept of membership, because you don't find a lot of verses in the Bible that says, Thou shalt join a church. Thou shalt become a formal member of a church. Any more than you find verses in the Bible that say God is a trinity. God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But that doesn't mean that the doctrine of the Trinity is not taught in the Bible. It actually is all throughout. You just have a hard time finding a single handy proof text that you can use against your Jehovah's Witness friends. It's just not that easy to pull it out with one verse. And likewise with church membership. Sometimes people stumble over this because they can't pull out a simple proof text and say, here it is. But it's it's just understood. It undergirds. It's under it underlies so much of what the New Testament teaches. And here's another place: the the shepherds are required to provide certain ministries and to have certain oversight responsibilities over the flock of God, which is among you. Well, who does that mean? Everybody who shows up. Every Shepherd, of course, will endeavor to help anyone who shows up and shows interest in the Word of God. We'll try to teach them the Word of God. We'll try to minister to them. But the ones that you have particular responsibility to are the ones who can be identified as the members of this particular flock. And there are responsibilities that flow both ways. Pastors have biblically assigned responsibilities to those members that they don't have to other people. And members have particular biblically responsibilities that flow toward those men who have been given the office of elder or pastor, overseer. And how are you to carry out this work, this overseeing work? Well, to teach God's word is the first and foremost way. An awful lot of the overseeing responsibility can be carried out right from the pulpit if you're teaching the word of God. That's where it begins, and that's the primary priority. But there is, of course, some administrative responsibility that is very clearly indicated here as well. And so these men, these elders, are to oversee the church's ministry and function to make sure it runs smoothly. And will, upon occasion, unfortunately, have to guide the church in exercising church discipline as necessary. Not a welcome task, but all necessary to... Shepherd, the flock of God which is among you, exercising oversight, making sure that it's functioning in a biblical way in all regards. How much authority should the bishop, the overseer, exercise? That's a perennial question, isn't it? And Peter's going to address that in the message we'll look at next Sunday, where he gives some qualifications for how this is to be carried out. And he makes it very clear that overseers are not to act as lords over God's heritage. Obviously, they are to oversee with as light a hand as possible, but that doesn't mean that they have no more authority than 
an average member in the church, that they're just another sheep, maybe with a teaching gift. There's certainly more implied here than that. There, there is some authority that is necessary if you are going to exercise oversight, if you are going to superintend, if you are going to administrate. And that is very difficult, first of all, because all fallen sons and daughters of Adam have a pretty anti-authoritarian streak. We sheep, even as sheep, even when we're we're not goats, when we're sheep, and we're saved sheep, we can tend to be pretty stubborn, and nobody's going to tell me what to do kind of attitude. Makes the pastor's responsibility very challenging, how to exercise this oversight. And then, on top of that, we in the 21st century in America have become part of a very anti-authoritarian age. It's endemic within our hearts, and then it's in the culture in which we live, unlike previous ages where perhaps people were accustomed to living in the domain of a king and under a duke and under a... uh, they were a serf, perhaps, living on, in, in the territory of the man who lived in the castle. And this constant, constant emphasis upon authority and class division and so forth. We don't, we don't have that in, in our day. America is proud of the fact that we don't have any class distinctions. And no doubt, in the, in the main, that's pretty good. But you see, every good can become a vice. And we do have this anti-authoritarian uh, inclination within us. And then we have this anti-authoritarian encouragement that is in the society in which we live and pity the poor elder who tries to serve as an overseer in that kind of climate. I assure you, it isn't easy. This is where your understanding and help is very important. How much authority should a pastor exercise? And I would just say two things to that question. Number one, no more than is necessary to maintain spiritual health. The, the direction should always be in the direction of, of trying to be as light as possible instead of, instead of being more heavy-handed than necessary. Though, again, that's very subjective, and it's a matter of opinion oftentimes, isn't it? Because the fact of the matter is, to some people, any slight exercise of authority is too much. That's just the way some people are. And you just have to understand that. And when that's true, you'll just have to say, I'm sorry, but this is what God has commissioned me to do. To be faithful to the Lord as a pastor, I must not only preach the word of God as clearly, as accurately, as faithfully as I possibly can, but I must also exercise the oversight that has been committed to me by that same God in that same word. And we have to understand that. But how much authority? No more than is necessary to maintain spiritual health, a subjective description to be sure. And number two, no more than is necessary to protect the function of overseer. And this may even be a little more helpful. One thing is clear in Scripture, and that is that nobody else in the church is given equal or greater authority than the elder, the bishop. There is some additional authority assigned to that office that doesn't belong to anybody else in the church. 
Those who hold that office need to understand the importance of exercising it lightly, not as being lords over God's heritage. But they've got to understand that there is some authority there that must be exercised. And here's the thing. Human nature being what it is, there will always at times be others who will want to rise up and challenge that authority. They want it. Remember how often that happened to Moses. God had given him the responsibility, but Miriam didn't like that. Aaron didn't like that. God had to deal with them. And and Nadab and Abihu didn't like that. God had to deal with them. And others didn't like that. God had to deal with them. Others wanted to have at least equal authority. But God didn't give anybody else equal authority. God gave superior authority to Moses in that situation. And that's the way it is. And human nature being what it is, there will always... In every church situation, be those who will want to and sometimes will connive and plan and scheme for how to to gain greater influence, greater authority, so that they would like to have the same authority as the pastor and, if possible, even greater authority than the pastor or pastors. So how much authority should the elder exercise in that situation? Enough to maintain his biblical role, their biblical role, as the ones with the greatest level of authority given by God. As long as it's clear that they have more oversight, more administrative authority than anybody else in the church, then that's, that's probably right. Now, that doesn't determine whether they have become too heavy-handed or not, but at least anything less than that is certainly not biblical. That much is clear. I heard a pastor one time who bragged about the fact that he had the kind of church where he could just just uh, spend all of his time preparing and preaching messages and everybody else took care of everything else. He didn't have anything to do with anything else, and he thought that was good. And I would have to say that's an abdication of your God-given responsibility. It may sound spiritual, but it's not. A lot of things that sound spiritual, but they're not. Shepherd the flock of God, taking the oversight thereof. That's what pastors are commanded to do. And all of this emphasizes the importance of the public ministry of God's word in every church and the importance of wise, godly, biblically knowledgeable pastors, how important they are to the health of the church, the health of God's people, and the importance of receptive, cooperative sheep. Remember, Sheep cannot find adequate food and water on their own. They need some help. God has provided some help. Sheep cannot distinguish between safe and poisonous foods. Sometimes God's people have difficulty distinguishing between sound and unsound doctrine. They need some help with that. God has appointed a means. Sheep sometimes cannot find their way home when they get lost. They get wandering out out in the wilderness and get all out of sorts, and they don't know how to get, get back. God has given pastors the responsibility to help them find their way back. Sheep can't defend themselves from predators. Sometimes they become prey to all kinds of of those who would take advantage of them and deceive them, and God has given pastors to help with that. Sheep can be stubborn and stupid, and pastors sometimes too, and they have to to be very wise and godly, and they need the input of other pastors as well. But sheep can be very stubborn and stupid, but God has provided the remedy for that in good, godly Biblical elders exercising their God-given function. Shall we pray? 
Father, we bow to praise you for the salvation we have in Christ and to thank you for your design of the church, which we know to be a perfect design because you have done it. So help us, therefore, O Lord, to understand it, to appreciate it, to love the church as you have arranged it, to find our place within it according to your will, and to help it to be healthy and to function according to your word, that it might be strong and that it might have impact in the lives of God's people and impact in the lives of the people in the communities where you have placed these churches. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.